Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Hello, this is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me as I have another authentic conversation with a player and character in the data center industry. Hopefully you were able to download some thoughts, ideas, and knowledge that will add value to your career and your life. Note that this podcast is a labor of love for me, unsupported by advertisers so that I am able to have an uninterrupted conversation free from distractions for you or commercial obligations for me. As such, I do have one request, and that is simply that you share this podcast far and wide with your peers and throw a hashtag I love data centers if you can while sharing on social media. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of I Love Data Centers. This is Sean Patrick Terrio, and I have with me here today Bruce Lehrman, the CEO and one of the founders of Involta, a data center provider in the U.S. with facilities all over the U.S. Uh, Excited to dig into the conversation. He's been at the company now for almost 15 years um, and has seen the company grow from an idea into what it is today. Uh, Thank you so much, Bruce, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. It's really great to be on your show. So one of the things I love digging into is the backgrounds of, of owners and executives in our industry and just seeing the, the wide, wide spectrum of backgrounds that people have. And I, as I started doing you know, some online stalking of your background, Bruce, I noticed that you, you don't have a typical you know, geek uh, education and geek background. Could you, could you walk me and, and our listeners through kind of how you got um, into the technological arena in, in technology space? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think for me, the, the um, technology, I was, I was always a good math science guy um, and went to college and, and uh, just pursued, kind of found myself um, in technology companies and high-tech companies. And um, in 96, decided to um, put out my own shingle when when I um, began working with uh, picture tell and video conferencing. It was just amazing to me in that period of time that you could you know put these things together and have pretty decent video meetings. And really thought at that time in you know ninety four, ninety five, ninety six timeframe that this video communication was just going to really revolutionize how we communicate. And so started a company doing. Um, video conferencing and as well, um, eventually video streaming and uh, grew the business. And one of the interesting things is when we started to do video streaming, um, the, and that was you know, probably 97, um, maybe too early to be uh, doing uh, streaming media. I mean, those days, you know, some, some PCs didn't have sound cards even, um, but we were doing the streaming and the, the need was for uh, quality, um, reliable uh, internet. And so we ended up um, putting some servers into the first internet data center in the world in uh, Palo Alto Internet Exchange. Mm-hmm. And and I just kind of fell in love at that moment with the data center industry and you know kind of watched it um, boom and then 
know, when the internet market crashed, there was a lot of um, excess builds in the data center marketplace, and you know, that all was um, absorbed. And by 2004, 2005, people were building new data centers and had a um, friend of mine had a telco data center that uh, had been abandoned and asked if I knew what to do with it. And so um, that became our our first data center. We renovated it and, and uh, took it over and, and uh, started building what's now in Volta. And which which facility was that specifically? It's in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And are you where? Where are you based? Um, I'm in my uh, the headquarters are in Cedar Rapids, and uh, um, I'm I work out of our our Cedar Rapids office. Although I'm on the road um, historically, yeah, um, a lot going from market to market. And were you were you originally from the Midwest? Originally from Iowa? Uh, yeah, yeah. I grew up in Iowa. Went to school um, in Iowa. Uh, I grew up on a farm outside of Cedar Rapids, not too far, and um, um, learned a lot about the work ethic that's required to make it in the world. And was fortunate to uh, get get to college and and be able to pursue a, a, a career in technology. I love it. Yeah, I'm a fellow Midwesterner, and I think that it's. I, I always find that I connect. Uh, really well with other Midwesterners, uh, you know, not saying that other regions in the country and in the world don't uh, have, uh, uh, aren't raised in a similar fashion because it really just depends on, on your parents. But they, you know, I was raised to value values and found that the vast majority of the people in and around the Midwest have, have similar ethics and ethos. Um, having spent some time in California, it was a little bit tougher to come come across that the the value was around the dollar and following figureheads like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and and whatnot um, versus getting your head putting your head down, getting your hands dirty, and just getting to work and, and struggling day in day out. I think that's right. I mean, it's a culture I think that is done um, you know me well in my um, career, but also. You know, the culture of the business is very much a relationship and, you know, dig in and help people out when they're having a problem. Yeah. So when you were growing up on the farm, how, how did you get exposed to computers and, and tech? Did that come more when you went to university? Yeah, probably my first exposure was in uh, high school when we started working on a Apple IIe computer and it was um, one of our um, group, uh, the group I was in, we decided that we were going to build a cataloging system for all the books in the library on an Apple IIe. So that was my first coding experience, and uh, it it wasn't great, but it it worked. <laughs> <laughs> we all got to start somewhere. That's right. That's awesome. And so the businesses that you've had got you exploring in in different arenas, right? So you were talking about audio and video conferencing on the software side and, and audio, you know, video side of the house. And the data center is, is very different. I mean, I, I similarly came from working in the software world and then got exposed to the data center industry and really fell in love with the data center industry. Cause I saw that software kind of came and went and it was constantly being evolved. Um, and what was hot one year, you know, could disappear and be Trump the next year. Uh, but the infrastructure itself remained constant. 
and was constantly yeah. expanding and growing on top of itself. And that's what drew me. But what, what did you find? Like what, why not stick in the same field and versus shift focus into the infrastructure world? Yeah, I think one of the things that I liked about the data center uh, business and, and, you know, very similar to you, I like the the stability of the, you know, assets. Um, but in the, in the software business, there's really, um, in the end, the only tangible value is the amount of revenue you're generating and the income you're creating because um, you don't have any real tangible um, assets. And if your business isn't working, your software is not worth anything. And so I think for me, I like the idea and maybe it's, maybe it goes back to my days on the farm, but I did like to own and operate and, and have more control over, you know, the real property that, that, that is the basis for what's happening in technology. Um, one of the other things that I also saw is that the, the data center industry, when we started, was really focused on a few, what, you know, they refer to as the tier one markets and still do. Um, but there's a lot of businesses and a lot of companies that are in tier two, tier three markets that need to have access to the same sort of infrastructure. And so for me, that was really important to, you know, create, create infrastructure in secondary markets that, that allowed for, you know, people to continue to maintain, you know, their companies and their, their employees and their IT workers, um, you know, in, in the regions they were in. Yeah, I think the majority of the marketplace I've found totally ignores those marketplaces because they just see the hundreds of megawatts that get consumed by the Facebooks, Microsofts, Amazons and whatnot inside the tier one markets. But there's there is a growing, constantly growing demand in those, you know, what are now called the edge markets. You know, you were yep. in edge before edge, you know, even was defined <laughs> right. as edge. I know we talked about changing our name to Edge Volta since it's so uh, trendy right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the new cloud. Um, so the markets you're in: Tucson, Boise, Marion, uh, Marion, Iowa, Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, three locations in Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I found the Duluth, Minnesota one interesting. I've actually spent some time up in Minnesota. Went to camp in Minnesota. Um, and took a ferry from Duluth out to Isle Royale back in the day to do some camping out on Isle Royale. But mm-hmm. Duluth just seems like it's uh, it's a fun town. It's right on the water. You know, I grew up in Chicago, right on the water as well. So I, I appreciated it. But never in my wildest dreams did I think that there would be demand for data centers um, and data center capacity in Duluth, Minnesota. Can you walk me through that story? Yeah, sure. So as with a lot of our facilities, we we worked with uh, uh, tenant anchor tenants that uh, would take down a good chunk in our data center before we would begin um, the build out of that facility. And we had um, just completed our uh, kind of our first real data center in Marion, Iowa. Uh, had really worked um, well to to fill it up and to generate good cash flow. We began to look at other markets that um, would be interesting for us, and and felt like we had an opportunity to continue to kind of grow, you know, as our board would have said, you know, can you, can you actually take this and win an away game? And so it was interesting. We, we had talked to the economic development organization in Duluth and they were coming off a a situation where their big healthcare system up there and a couple other businesses had wanted to attract a data center to Duluth, Minnesota. 
and the city was behind it, an economic development organization and a number of companies. And the company that that had um, agreed to build the data center um, lost their uh, financing kind of right at the altar. And so we kind of started talking to them and kind of took over those conversations and uh, and then built the data center up there. And it's really, it's it, you know, you've been up there. It's a great market, great people. We've had the ability to hire some tremendous talent in the Duluth market that also serves and some of our other data centers as well. Uh, community is a big supporter of ours. And so it's just really been a great market. We've been able to um, win business out of the Twin Cities to support you know the ongoing growth as well as local Duluth businesses. And what lots, I appreciate lots, about... Lots, sorry. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, also, uh, there's lots of free cooling up there. So. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so to that end, do you, did you, when designing the facility, did you take that into consideration or did that come later down the road? No, absolutely. When we designed it, we, we took into account the number of days that we wouldn't have to use mechanical cooling. Uh, and that's a substantial number of days. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing about Duluth that, that most people don't know is that that whole, um, area is kind of one giant chunk of granite. And so in terms of having any risk of earthquakes or anything like that, it's, it's almost um, non-existent up there. It's the, I believe it's the largest chunk of granite in the world is um, what makes up that Duluth area. So when you do a, um, a groundbreaking in Duluth, you don't bring a, a shovel, you bring a stick of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, what, so what are the, you know, g- geological or even environmental risk factors for a facility up in that market, if any? I mean, I can't imagine getting snowed in would be that much of a, a risk factor, but um, are there any up there? You know, it, we haven't seen any issues that have uh, impacted our data center operations in that area. I mean, there's certainly cold weather and, you know, stuff to get employees into the data center. Some days we have to have you know, a lot of snow moved, but it, we haven't found anything that's that's impacted it. That that lake up there um, also has a disruptive effect on you know tornadoes or anything like that that you find in the Midwest. Uh, so they don't really have a tornado risk. There's not a you know any any sort of earthquake risk. And then um, the um, big power disruption that uh, uh, impacted the whole East Coast a number of years ago was actually stopped at the uh, Minnesota Power location in, in Duluth. Hmm. Interesting. And the other locations in, you know, you've got Pittsburgh and Arizona and Idaho. Um, were those also very opportunistic based on customers wanting to or needing to be in those markets? Yeah. So we, we developed um, a capability around identifying um, markets that were underserved and then working with some of the larger clients in those markets that would um, pre-lease space and, and allow us to go uh, build the, the data center in those markets. And we've been very successful in the healthcare industry. Um, almost 40% of our business is now uh, healthcare. And so th- those uh, healthcare organizations have a very unique need. We created an advisory board to kind of support um, that vertical and, uh, you, you know, it's, it's continued to be a, a good, um, leading 
place for our, our ability to grow. So I so related to the advisory board, which it's brilliant to put that together, especially with your customers when you've got a sweet spot because uh, it can kind of help feed your growth and, and help direct you as you as you grow. I noticed you've got a, a master's in marketing uh, that you picked up. What what led you down that path uh, to pick up that specific degree? Because it, it's important because I think those who are extremely successful just in life are those who have cross-disciplinary knowledge and, you know, aren't just mega geeks, but are mega geeks who also understand the sales, marketing, communication side of the, uh, I guess, business in general. But w- was that on your mind when you went down that path? Yeah, you know, it was. I was, um, for me, I, I'm, a, I'm good at um, seeing trends and opportunities. And I've kind of always been, you know, entrepreneurial in nature. And, you know, back when I was going to school, there wasn't really a lot of um, entrepreneurship um, courses. And so marketing was was the closest thing that I, I kind of saw to that. I mean, entrepreneurs back when I graduated from college were those people that couldn't get jobs in the Fortune 500 companies. So, uh, you know, now it's just, it's amazing the the opportunities that young people have to learn that there is a real art and science around entrepreneurship and, and how to, how to look at that from a cross you know, uh, functional uh, standpoint. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. My, uh, I remember at one point my in-laws half jokingly said to me early on, cause I've, I've been an entrepreneur since I guess a sophomore in college uh, said an entrepreneur is another name for unemployed. And uh, I, I think I've since proven them wrong and, and different on that, on that uh, notion that they had. But, um, you know, some people do, <laughs> do believe that. Unfortunately, I think no. the economy today is creating more and more entrepreneurs with every, every day that everything remains locked down. But, um, you know, it's maybe a silver lining in what's going on. Um, it's forcing people to rethink how they can survive and thrive in, in this type of a climate. Exactly. So um, one of the other key things I wanted to dig into with you is you're one of the few providers in the market that have been able to successfully take a data center business and grow managed services, backup, disaster recovery, hosting, um, and related managed IaaS, managed infrastructure as a service uh, solutions on top of that. A lot of folks tend to focus on any one or the other, in part, I believe, because the capital markets get very confused, just as uh, I think a lot of sales reps get confused trying to sell uh, multiple solutions to the same customer. Um, but you, you decided to go that path and take all of that on, which is a lot. And there's very, very few companies who've been able to do that and do that successfully. So what, what was the, um, what instigated that on your end? So our, our customers really uh, brought us there. And if, and if we think about the breadth of our capability, it's really about helping our clients achieve their journey and their technology strategy. And, and uh, when we started working with a lot of organizations, and I think it's, it's more true today than when we started the you know, managed services business, um, our, our clients don't want to be in the IT industry. I, they don't, they don't want to be in charge of um, 
data centers for sure. And they definitely don't want to be responsible for the care and feeding of server storage, network, routing, firewalls. I mean, they really want to say, you know, this is a service that if we can buy that um, and we can take our people and our talent and our leadership and focus on, you know, what do we do with these applications and what do we do with this data and the analytics and machine learning and, you know, how do they step up and say, you know, we're, we're going to drive the business and be the business strategy people and let someone else manage the, the infrastructure. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. We talked to a lot of in the healthcare space and they've outsourced their food service. They've outsourced their laundry. They've outsourced all these different functions, but yet it seemed like um, IT was this um, piece of the business that they had to hold on to. I think more and more they're saying we don't we don't want to we don't want to differentiate ourselves based on how well we operate our infrastructure. We want to differentiate on patient care and wellness. So it's really been interesting to see that migration and as as organizations get more comfortable giving up you know, little pieces at a time, um, they get comfortable giving up, you know, most of it or all of it eventually. The original business plan for Involta, was that just a pure data center power and space play? Or did that also involve dabbling in and, and starting to do managed services and managed hosting? So we had um, our, our main mission was to build own and operate data centers. Um, we did have a couple clients um, that came along in an acquisition that we were managing um, infrastructure for a very large uh, manufacturing organization. And then that that business just continued to grow as we had that kind of capability. Um, it, it grew you know slowly until we put a real focus around it. And today that portion of our business is more than 50% of our revenue. Wow. Uh, you know, all, it is in, you know, operating out of our data centers, but uh, um, managed services now has grown to more than 50% of our revenue. And it's, it's a very capital intensive piece of the business because of the personnel required and all the certifications yep. for all the different pieces. So um, getting into it, that's also where I find a lot of companies start to shy away because they start saying, well, you know, we can make a lot more money if we just focus on the power and space component and not have to manage all the infrastructure for our customers and just serve as landlords. But um, you took a, a different path. And what I found interest, what I find interesting is in a lot of the major tier one markets, uh, the big companies that reside there tend to want to control and own a lot of their own infrastructure. Um, even though that may not be their core competency. And yet it's in the tier two, tier three markets where the specialization and outsourcing is almost um, second nature and desirable where people realize, you know, they're not in the business of maintaining a data center or um, they're not in, you know, the IT business. They are a hospital. They should focus on healthcare. Um, yeah. And it's almost, I, I would think it would almost be the opposite, but it's, it's, it's not. So, I, you know, I, do, I just, my hat goes off to you for, uh, you know, convincing your investors that this is going to work in the long run. But was there pain originally trying to convince your, your board and whatnot that this was a direction that was going to be worth it? Yeah, you know, we've, we've had a really good relationship with our board and um, I think they saw the, the vision and the strategy. 
And, you know, one of the things that you did bring up is it is hard to kind of get over the hump uh, from an organic growth standpoint. And so we did, you know, an acquisition that also brought us some scale in that area when we acquired uh, DRS in Youngstown, Ohio. So it, it really about doubled our size of our managed services um, offering and our and our number of people that were supporting it. So it did give us, you know, some scale that we needed um, to really um, accelerate that piece of the business. And, you know, of course, the board was, you know, a part of that decision as well. So how, how are you guys, actually, let me back up to that. How did you guys originally get started? Were you, did you have like venture capital money or some seed sage from the original um, founders or how did, how yeah, did the was, company originally get capitalized? Yeah, it was uh, originally, it was um, the company was formed by the merger of two companies. Um, Cobalt Technology was a company that I started along with a gentleman named Randy Rings, who is our uh, corporate counsel. Um, we we were starting the data center side, really focused on that that first um, data center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And some people that we had worked with had also been involved in building out a new tier three facility. Um, and they had some some of the you know managed services capability. Um, and so we merged those two companies together in 2007 to form Involta. And so it did have a little. You know, we had some ability to be not only that landlord from day one, but we did understand, you know, what, what the organizations were doing um, with their infrastructure, you know, kind of from day one. So we weren't just a, uh, a real estate play, but we really did have real estate and an understanding of the IT side. So it was a, a unique perspective in the market at that period of time. And I think it was really helpful for us to continue to, to grow the business where we had those uh, two disciplines inside the organization. And how how has the, I guess, capital structure of the business evolved over time? Is it still owned by the original folks or have you brought in outside capital? Yeah, we, we've brought in outside capital. Um, when we uh, began to build data centers in Duluth and Akron, Ohio, uh, we did bring in um, additional outside capital. Um, mostly they were... Um, high net worth individuals that uh, joined our, our uh, team and, you know, created new board members. Um, and then in, in 2014, we did a uh, offering with uh, private equity MC partners out of Boston, um, uh, made an investment in the company. And uh, that, that's been a, a great opportunity for us to continue to be able to, to grow um, since then with, um, with MC partners. Awesome. And so one of the topics I really want to dig in with you is how the work from home virtual workspace uh, shift that's happened over the last six-ish months um, has affected your business. And I think a lot of us who are in the industry and probably those listening know that it's, it's benefited and that there's obviously much more demand for virtual conferencing and connectivity and, and whatnot. But um, how has your business changed, if at all, as a result of, of what's going on? Yeah, I think I think our business is, um, remains strong in the industry. Um, it has this work from home has changed how we do things and how we have to you know, provide leadership in kind of a new time of, of people's lives. 
really interesting that um, we do own about 12,000 miles of fiber as well. And so, you know, in the initial days of everyone working from home, there was a lot of people needing to increase bandwidth and, and uh, turn up new links and that. So there was um, a lot of opportunity to, to help organizations um, move from, you know, where everybody comes to work every day to when 85 or 95% of your people are working from home every day. Uh, and, and so that, that did um, create some opportunities. I think that the difficult thing right now is that um, trying to understand how does sales and, and that work in a virtual environment where our sales teams are used to going and having lunch with a client or you know meeting in person or doing a tour of our facilities. And we've had to reinvent ourselves in terms of how we do uh, meetings and how we create leads and how do we generate opportunities and that's and that's taken on a you know kind of a new um, life of its own. I mean everybody's trying to figure out how that works. Yeah, is there what has worked? <laughs> what what is working um, and or what what maybe isn't working that you that you guys have experienced? Yeah, I, I think. Um, we've been able to get our uh, clients together on virtual meetings and we've done, you know, some of the happy hours and, you know, the, the different things that can still make um, meeting time interesting. We've, we've used a, um, a virtual wine tasting event uh, where we brought the owner of a, a Sonoma a wine uh, producer in to do the, you know, a virtual tasting. We shipped everybody few bottles of wine and you know so trying to create that that same you know relationship building um that's the core of kind of who the culture of our company is but in a different way i'd say you know some of the things that aren't working is we've we've learned that you know in a in a video meeting having a presentation up the entire time um people lose track of what they're doing and you can you can see that you lose people but when you have people all kind of full screen on on the, uh, in a meeting, people people do tend to pay attention, and you can usually see when people are you know um, not not fully engaged, and and we can you know kind of bring bring people back into a conversation. But in in a situation where you have a presentation up and everybody is a postage stamp, uh, people people move on to something else. So it, it's really. Um, become more difficult, I think, to keep people engaged in conversations. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but um, maybe aggravated with the constant video uh, webinar conferences that everything is converted into. I'm yet to attend one, and I've been to about a dozen that I thought uh, was even remotely as impactful as a live event. I just looked yeah. through my my history you know, the last 20 some odd years, the vast majority of the deals that I've done and re best relationships I've made have been over meals with people exactly. or sidebar conversations. And that's just completely eliminated. And you can only do so many virtual happy hours before, you know, you just lose, lose interest. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, they're, they're a novelty the first two or three times, but after that, it just kind of gets old. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to, to things opening back up again. And, you know, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm pleased to see that, you know, the numbers across the board have been going down 
week over week as it relates to um, COVID. And, you know, there's this new data that came out from the CDC that shows that only 6% of the total COVID deaths were COVID only deaths. So mm-hmm. it's 90, 94% of them were with other causes. Um, so hopefully uh, more data like that comes out that people can look at and digest and make sense of to get things open. But I've even started doing more events. We used to do a, a monthly event here at my office on the rooftop um, and we moved it to an outside park. And so we, mm-hmm. you know, we just invite people to come join us at the park and, you know, bring some things for people to play around with soccer balls and whatnot and bring some drinks and whatnot. But people can stay distance if they want to stay distance, but um, you know, we can have as many people as we want in that outside space. It's not enclosed and trying to find workarounds to it, but it, it's, it's so desperately needed, especially for people like, you know, me and I'm sure you very yeah. social by nature, <laughs> right. that interaction with other humans is um, required and saves, saves me from going into a pit of depression and despair. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, we've done, we've done some golf events too. Golf seems to be something that, you know, people feel comfortable being outdoors and yeah. spread, a, spread apart a little bit and just had a, an industry event, uh, a tournament that uh, we did Friday. And it, it, you know, it's not the same, but it's still, you know, one, one of the guys in, in our group said it's one of the best things he's done in a long time. So, you know, it, it is, people do really want to get out and want to, you know, get back to normal and as, as best you can do that in a, in a safe manner. You know, I think people are wanting to get it done. Yeah. How, how many employees do you guys have now? Um, we have a little over 250 employees. Wow. Um, and as you guys have been scaling and growing over the last 15 ish years, how, how have your hiring practices evolved? And I ask because there's, there's a flood of people who are now coming into our industry and a lot of them are trying to figure out how they can get a leg up. Uh, mm-hmm. and are worried because they have, you know, no experience in data centers uh, and are trying to get their foot in the door. Um, so, you know, twofold question here. One is how have your hiring practices evolved over time as you've learned, you know, the type of people that will succeed versus maybe won't succeed as well. Uh, and the other is, um, you know, what would you recommend to someone who's coming into the industry that's, that's new? Yeah, I think one of the things that we have done is um, because we were early enough in the industry that we really created a structure to bring people in um, that had the right personality type and the right uh, ability to learn and and teach them how the the industry works um, from a you know more operations of the facilities kind of kind of standpoint. Um, you know, we we really look for the ability to have you know people that are focused on you know helping others achieve their goals and and looking for natural curiosity and we can help help teach people the the data center industry i think you know when you're talking about like more senior people in the organization we i think again the our culture has allowed us to continue to attract and and retain uh good good people in the industry people like to be a part of a you know, vibrant, growing company where there's, you know, we're doing fun things and um, they feel like they have a growth path and an opportunity to succeed. So, um, you know, we've really, um, I think, created a pretty good um, environment for 
um, attracting some of the better people in the markets we serve. I think generally we are, um, you know, work on being a, a good steward in our communities and being a part of the local environments and um, making sure that you know people know not only who we are but you know you know that it's a great place to work and uh, we've been pretty fortunate that 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 has um, helped us kind of attract and retain really great people. Have you have you guys gotten involved in some of the economic development related activities in the cities that you guys are doing business with? Absolutely, yeah. Almost all of them were involved in the economic development, uh, if not all. Of them. I would say I can't think of one right now that we're not involved in economic development. And it's funny, you know, when we um, I, I hired our our VP of sales in the Ohio market, and we went into a a restaurant and, and I knew like seven or eight people in this restaurant and, and, you know, she knew like one or two of them. She's like, you know, have you lived here your whole life before <laughs> something? What happened? But it's, it's true. I mean, we do, you know, try to be a part of the communities and, and uh, be a part of um, helping out the organization, uh, the, the um, communities, you know, achieve, achieve what they're trying to achieve. And I would assume that that involves also a lot of the innovation and startup communities in those in those ecosystems, right? Exactly. Yep. You know, it's been um, you know being the entrepreneur that I am from such a young age. I it's been a, a hobby of mine is to constantly find those those networks and those young entrepreneurs and try to help coach and guide them along their path yep. and teach them a lot of the lessons that I had to learn the long the hard way. Um, but that's that's so needed, and especially needed in those tier two, tier three markets that that you're focused yep. in. Um, you know, most people think of Silicon Valley, or they'll think of you know Virginia, or they'll think of Chicago. But um, there's a lot of activity going on, or at least was going on in a lot of these markets, and hopefully will will continue to go on into the future. But those markets need uh, companies such as yours that are providing such a, a unique. Uh, I guess, job, uh, professional uh, path for them to go down so that they don't have to go into, you know, to go back to Minnesota again, or even Iowa, right? You don't have to go to Iowa City, or you don't have to go to any of the major market in order to work for the big company to get, you know, to have a job being an AWS certified engineer, right? That's right. Uh, That's right. That, so if you're highly talented and skilled and in, you know, a, a tier two, tier three market, you don't have to, you know, now commute or leave uh, those markets. And Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where I am, I've seen, seeing a lot of that and a lot of other rural communities are as well as businesses start to kind of filter out into the, the rural areas and build up those cities. But um, that's great work. I'm glad to hear that you're doing it because uh, it's so desperately needed. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's a combination to, you know, to your point, there's, there's a need for the coaching and mentoring. There's the, you know, you need to have capital to start these. So getting funds developed, you need to have government support. I mean, there, there's just a lot of um, pieces that have to come together and a lot of, you know, people working together to make all that happen to create a good ecosystem for entrepreneurship. And so again, we, you know, been a part of it for a long time and feel like I was the recipient of a lot of, you know, business leaders throughout my career, helping me out and giving me feedback and guidance. And I think it's really important for all of us to to do it whenever you can. And, you know, I, I, I generally have not um, ever said no to an entrepreneur that said they wanted to, you know, have a cup of coffee and, and chat about their business plan. So 
think it's just really important that, that we do those pieces and you know create create the investment vehicles that people can um, be a part of and and then invest in the startups that you know need capital to grow. I mean, there's not a, you know many companies that have started purely with just the founder's own money. Right. So when you were early on as a as a working professional. Um, do you remember any advice that you were given by any mentors that really have stuck with you to date that help guide you as a compass? Yeah, you know, there's there's probably a lot of good guidance I've gotten over the years. One one thing that stuck with me um, when we were starting my first company that I started was to make sure you get your your planning, you know. What are you going to do this week? What are you going to do next week? What are you going to do 30 days? What are you going to do 60 days? What are you going to do 90 days? Because there's really a difference between being busy and, and achieving results. And I think that that's so true in today's world of a work from home where everybody looks at their calendar and they're busy all day, every day on Teams meetings. Um, but, you know, are you really achieving what you need to be achieving? Um, and, and if you don't have a good planning process, you don't have a good measurement system, you really can be really busy all day long and, and in a year from now, not really achieve kind of the, the goals that you were setting out to do. Yeah, that's, that's a huge one. Um, do, you, do you have a practice that you use that helps with that? Do you journal or do you have a program that you use or what, what helps for you with that planning? Yeah, I, I do it um, both on my calendar, but also I do I do journal um, and make sure that I am uh, keep a track of the things that I need to get um, accomplished all the time. I keep running running kind of lists of these things. We've also um, begun as an organization using some of the um, OKRs, the objectives and key results that they talk about in the book Measure What Matters was you know part of um you know intel originally was the creator of this um and and so now google and and um you know bill gates foundation and lots of organizations now have begun using these objectives and key results and one of the things that the, they do is is any of your goals have to be measured and they have to be time bound so you have to know like i will achieve this by this date and i will know success when i hit 92% of this or my NPS score is 80 or, you know, it's, it's um, very defined in terms of h- how you go about measuring, you know, the results. So we have all of the people leaders in our organization um, have their OKRs and we have a system that manages all that. And, you know, we review those, uh, you know, regularly in terms of how people are making progress towards goals and, and when they're not. And as you know, you know, from a business perspective, many of these goals are interrelated. So as an example, security can't do the things they need to do if our infrastructure guys aren't upgrading our firewalls or doing some of these things. So um, it, it helps us also understand those interdependencies. And if somebody's you know, going from green to yellow, you know, how do we all step in to, to help them you know, get back to green again? And so it's not used as much as... Uh, um, tool to say, hey, you're not getting your job done. It's more about a, a, a mechanism to say, you know, what what are the things we can do to help you get yourself back on track? Yeah, that's that's good to hear. And I 
think more and more companies are hopefully catching on to this. Um, you know, we the I think it's smart goals is what um, I was trained on early on: specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound. Um, and I make that part of my my daily journaling practice as well. I just wish more organizations did the same, uh, especially yeah. municipalities. I'm, I'm finishing a project with a, a city that will remain nameless. And it's just interesting to me how, how that is just fundamentally lacking from so many of the individuals. Thankfully they have new management that stepped in that gets it. That's starting to push balls forward and change things up. But, um, so it is interesting, you know, in our space too. I mean, we, we see organizations that are, you know, because we're so closely inter- interacting with organizations, you know, it's just surprising how great, um, many organizations operate and we learn a lot from those companies. And then to your point, you do run across some organizations where you say like, how, how does anything ever get done here? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're the success that they've had is almost to their detriment because they've got so much money coming in the door that they don't have to worry about being optimized um, in any way, shape or form. Uh, so let's, back into a handful of other um, topics and conversations here. So as the company has grown over time, what, what have you uh, experienced in that process as it relates to, you know, having a small team initially is very easy to manage. You know, you can kind of pick up the phone and call anybody, but with 200 some odd employees now, that's a lot more difficult of a process. So for Bruce as the CEO of Involta, your job is much different today, obviously, than it was 15 years ago. Um, is that something you're you're happy about? Do you wish you could go back to the to those good old days, or you know, what, where's your head at as it relates to that? Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're spot on. I mean, the the early days were were a lot different in the way you led. I mean, you walked around and you know we knew everybody and everybody knew you and everybody knew what their job was, and if you didn't, you know, you could. They, clearly communicate to the whole organization easily what to do. And I think we, we have as an organization and me personally have had to figure out how do we um, build a structure that continues to have, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit and that, that care for customers yet, um, you know, not be something that, you know, me as CEO has to manage, you know, what people are doing. So you really do have to, truly build a good, you know, honest organization. And I say honest because if, if, if there's um, skip level things happening where, you know, this, this person knows that if you tell this person something then you know, this happens and that happens and you really have to be focused on if you have, you know, an objection or you have a concern about the way somebody is doing something, you really do need to address that with that person directly and you have an obligation to do so telling someone else about a problem you're having with somebody else doesn't do anybody any good. And so building that kind of honest framework for, um, communication and transparency. Um, you know, I feel like we have, um, done a good job of doing that and, and still have a long ways to go. And that goes back to hiring as I'm sure you've probably right. learned, you know, finding specific people who have shared values uh, and vision as to where they want to be, um, 
they hope to see the business grow alongside them um, comes comes into play there. The for you personally, and I, I'm asking because I'm kind of scratching my own itch here. I've learned that I in no way, shape, or form want to be the CEO of a company with dozens, if not hundreds of people. It's just not mm-hmm. the path that I want to go on. Um, I find that I get more frustrated and um, irritated with having to manage lots and lots and lots of people um, and that I do far better in, in smaller group settings. <laughs> and so the, the businesses mm-hmm. that I've been a part of and that I've grown um, I intentionally keep small because I think that if I can have a small group of very focused uh, type A, you know, hustlers, we can accomplish a heck of a lot more than just piling people on to pile people on. And that I outsource as much as I can to organizations where they're outside of our core competency and skill set. But that's that doesn't work for everybody, and that nor can all organizations operate in that capacity. I'm blessed to be, you know, put myself in a position where I can do that. Um, but for you, as the business was growing, you must have had a some kind of you know desire to want to run and grow and operate a business at that scale. Was was that the case, or was that something that was kind of thrust upon you and you had to learn along the way, or what, what was that experience like? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm um, wired to grow and scale a business. Um, that being said, it, there are challenges with you know having you know moving from you know, a few people, core, core group of people that start a company to have an, you know, 250 and, and continuing to grow. Um, I would say that it's, it has been, you know, for me, I've had to, you know, focus on that uh, skill development myself and, you know, help understand how do we operate as a group. And, and I have had to, you know, spend a, a fair amount of attention on making sure that, that I'm the right leader, um, at this size organization and, you know, as, you know, been in a situation where, you know, I regularly, you know, ask my board of directors whether, you know, I'm doing the right things and, you know, areas where I can, uh, you know, do better. And, and if I'm not the right person to lead a business at this size, then, you know, we need to have a different conversation. Uh, so far, you know, we've, we've continued to, to believe that, uh, you know, we're on the right track and doing the right things and continue to provide great opportunities for employees and investors. And, and so I think everyone's you know, pretty happy with that. Uh, but you're right. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a different skill set. And I had to learn that. Yeah, and it's actually going back to the prior conversation about talking to entrepreneurs. I think it's, it's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to realize how a business scaling and growing is going to change them over time, but also the skills needed to uh, manage a, a company at scale are very different than to manage a bootstrap startup. Um, mm-hmm. Very different. And that's, that's why you see a lot of founders of companies as they grow and scale end up getting replaced by, you know, new CEOs that are brought in by the VC firm or private equity firm or new investors that are brought in to help them scale and grow over time. But that's, you know, knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses are part of uh, part of the battle as an entrepreneur. Yeah, we've had to, you know, um, I think, you know, what I've been taught to believe and I, and I, and I think it's worked out for us is that every time, you know, you 10 X your size, you really just need to fundamentally restructure your whole, um, organization and, and processes and, and all that. And I think we've done a good job. We, 
we think of ourselves right now uh, has have just gone through what we're calling our, our Involta 3.0 process where we've you know, moved people around, moved people in and out, you know, kind of reshuffled how we approach the market so that we can continue to be um, driving at the same rate that we have, you know, in the past uh, into the future and feel like, you know, this, this um, restructuring, reorganization and building on some process and, and technology it will help us position us for the next kind of five to seven year time frame. So what is the vision for Envolta? You know, Envolta 3.0, as you, as you say, what does it look like for the business over the next five, seven years? Yeah, so we have a lot of quantifiable goals. I think we, we um, want to continue to be the leader in this hybrid IT space. And um, so we have a the, the traditional co-location business we have our own uh, private cloud business, and we've been building our public cloud uh, capability and also our security suite. So we really think that the opportunity for us is to help organizations, you know, on their journey to outsource their um, infrastructure to an organization like ours, and we can help them um, figure out where the best place to put that. Uh, infrastructure, whether it's co-location, whether it's private cloud, or whether it's public cloud, and we want to be that that company that helps manage that, um, you know, the the decision making and the strategy around that. And so, so far, that's been really interesting um, as we've gone about that. I mean, we're I'd say we're still, you know, kind of in the early innings of of that um, deployment. But um, with the clients that have uh, engaged us, it's been very uh, worthwhile. Is the plan also to stay in those tier two, tier three markets in the yeah. U.S.? Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about the edge. We think that, uh, you know, it's still relatively early on in the edge strategy. Um, you know, what we do know is that all of the big um, hardware manufacturers are fundamentally re-architecting their technology to move from a centralized model to a decentralized model and to take advantage of, you know, edge as it's developing. We we think of ourselves as very well positioned in the markets um, as a data center operator. We we are um, will have you know the best facility in the marketplace and uh, connected with you know the fiber providers that are you know building out to the five G towers and all that. So in terms of you know where we're positioned and how we're positioned, we feel like. Um, from an edge perspective, you know, we're, we're in the sweet spot and we'll continue to grow in those markets. Gotcha. Um, I'm in the, the middle of actually raising a, a fund to specifically co-invest in different tier two, tier three opportunities, market opportunities. Um, and so I've been watching that space very closely for the last decade and I think that's that's truly where the future is and the growth is. And most of the major players in the market are all focused on the the hyperscalers and focused on the tier one cities and they're to the detriment and I guess to the to the advantage of people like you and I, um, mm-hmm. those other markets where there's so much opportunity and so much growth uh, that is occurring and will continue to occur in the market. Um, one other question I have for you is as it relates to what you're doing, you know, the the big competitor is the likes of someone like a rack space who has you know, mm-hmm. thousands of employees. 
uh, scattered all over the place. And now with the data pipe acquisition, they have data centers all over and they've now added data centers in the portfolio. Um, do you come up against them much in the marketplace? Yeah, we don't see them much in the markets that we're in. Um, they you know, clearly have done a, a really good job um, growing their, their brand and, you know, Apollo, Acquired them a few years ago, and, and I think that you know the leadership there is outstanding. Um, we just don't we haven't seen them a lot in the marketplace in in the markets we're in. Uh, not to mean that they they couldn't um, be there at some point, but you know we we really do uh, f- focus on um, a strategy where um, even though we're a national organization, we really focus locally, and so bringing that uh, kind of capability. Uh, nationally to a local organization has been has worked out really well you know i think we talked about being a part of the community being a trusted Mm -hmm. um, partner in these markets and building those relationships has really been the differentiator for us in terms of how we've continued to grow and and uh um I, i think that's you know that hopefully we can get back to the days of building relationships in person and uh and i think you know that um, definitely, you know, I think weeds the advantage to us. Yeah, I think you hit on a key point that I keep trying to make to a lot of the analysts in the industry who don't fully understand just how personal this business is. And if you're going to be right. outsourcing your IT to a company, you tend to want to be able to shake their hand and get to know them personally. Yeah. Um, and the thought of migrating all of your infrastructure to a company into a team of engineers that are going to maintain it um, is also very frightening if that company is constantly changing leadership or changing ownership or, you know, being bought and sold, you know, every couple of years due to the, the investment community that wants their return that they put into it. And so that's, that's also where I think a lot of the managed service providers across the country are still surviving and even thriving right now because people need that hands-on support and it can't all be done remotely. Um, and even though on paper and in spreadsheets, it may, might make sense to do it all remote and never have to have a physical body present. Um, it's the reality is people do need that level of support. You're hundred percent correct. It, it's um, you know, they, they're literally their job. Um, is at risk based on the decisions they're making with their partners. And, you know, the, the decision on a, a data center uh, company or, um, you know, a managed service provider, I mean, it, it's a big step for a lot of these organizations to take and not something that they take lightly at all. And, and you're right, they have to have a high degree of confidence that you're going to have your their back when, when stuff, you know, goes down or where there's issues. And, you know, I think, again, that's, you know, we've developed, you know, from a relationship standpoint, I can't tell you how many of our customers have become good friends just based on that type of relationship building. So related to that specific conversation, you as a business made a strategic decision to build a managed AWS and managed Azure practice. Um, and build that expertise in house. I was at a, in, with that kind of placeholder, I was at a conference about three years ago and they had one of the head product people from Amazon web services at the conference. And she had just gotten done talking about their product roadmap and how much they valued other partners and, and whatnot. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, Amazon 
typically has a track record of working with partners until they fully understand the marketplace and then building it all out in-house. You know, what can you tell this partnership ecosystem of data center providers and managed service providers who are in the room today uh, about your willingness or desire to eventually build out your own managed, you know, AWS practice in-house that's basically going to make all these folks obsolete if customers can just work with you directly. Um, and it was funny, right after I asked that question, someone behind me said, well, they already have that. And if you go to like manage AWS or manage AWS hosting, Dot com. They already have that practice built out in house, which I wasn't aware of, but they really focused on like the top 100 customers. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, you know, walk me through that thought process. Are you concerned or worried that Amazon uh, may encroach into that space, wanting to take ownership of that relationship? You know, I think, again, I think in the markets that we serve, um, it, there's, there's always opportunity to help people manage manage their infrastructure and help them be successful and you know i've been around long enough to see the cycles come and go of things that are potentially you know devastating and then you know not really you know fully materialized the way i think everybody um thought they they would or could you know i I really don't believe that um amazon is going to be interested in managing um, the IT for, you know, an organization that has a few hundred employees or, you know, a thousand employees. And their their focus, you know, will remain on, you know, where they um, have their ability to truly scale. And that's, you know, they're, they're going to work with, you know, the, the largest clients because those clients, um, they need to have that relationship with their partners, but most of the you know mid-sized businesses in the country, you know, are are just not um, not in that um, scaling ability for for an Amazon to say we can be successful by doing this by hiring you know, hundreds of thousands of people to go do this. I just don't believe that that's in the cards for Amazon. Yeah, I I would agree. I think that they're going to continue to rely on their their partnership ecosystem, yeah. and it's it's um, it'll be interesting how this all plays out. But at the end of the day, the understanding ownership management of the day to day infrastructure is separate from where all that infrastructure lives. You know, yeah. in in the hyperscale data center that may sit wherever it sits. But are you are you seeing Microsoft or Amazon or Google dropping any of their, you know, nodes into the edge near you or even inside Um, any of your facilities? Yeah, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, we're having a lot of conversations regarding um, that that hasn't um, kind of matured to the point where it's a good uh, cost trade-off for our clients. But I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there fast, and I think we'll mm-hmm. we'll we'll support that process. I mean, if you look at Rackspace as an example, you know, they're they're the largest reseller of AWS. Um, you know, they're their largest reseller, and so obviously, you know, that is is impacting their business in a positive manner. And I, you know, again, I think it will continue to do that and provide opportunities in that mid-market segment in, in the markets we serve. 
Definitely. So we're and as as as, as listen as Edge rolls out, I mean that's when I think we're going to see more of those pods uh, become more more important. There's organizations that are building out, you know, specific infrastructure to support an edge strategy that will be, you know, customers that will, you know, be able to bring a lot of these software um, driven organizations and the IOT companies, you know, aggregating those in edge markets. And, you know, we see really good opportunities in that marketplace. And what is the interconnection strategy for you and your facilities connecting into a lot of these different environments uh, that customers are requesting for, you know, hybrid workloads? Are you leveraging the likes of a pack of fabric or a megaport or, you know, even Equinix's UCX platform? Like how, how have you guys decided to go about addressing that? Yeah, we have some direct connects. We also have uh, Megaport as our you know primary in, in most of our data centers today. Um, you know that that continues to evolve quickly, but but definitely be having an on ramp to the public uh, cloud uh, is is a must have in today's marketplace. Yeah, I kind of call it uh, table stakes. And it used to be that, you know, yeah. having multiple carriers on net in your facility, a lot of companies thought that that was like new and novel when it was really just table stakes. And <laughs> yeah, now it's kind right. of the same thing. You have to have multiple yeah. on-ramps into public cloud. Um, so how about any, what are your, if you could put your, you know, look into your crystal ball, which I think it's becoming harder and harder for any of us to do these days. But if you could, like, where's, where's the industry evolving? Are there any unique features that you see playing out in the marketplace that um, may come to fruition over the next couple months or years to come? Yeah, it, it's, um, I'd say it's interesting. We have um, clients that they're really focused on um, getting out of, that that infrastructure space and so you know what used to be a cloud first strategy is now moving to kind of a um, SaaS first model i think that's impactful in a number of ways because um, before they were thinking about how do we build out our capabilities in this public cloud and now they're really thinking about how do we you know help you know how do we become a part of having somebody else manage you know our applications for us and and you know we're going to build our core competency around the interfaces and some of that. So you know again, you know, we are um, fortunate that we have uh, you know a lot of software as a service uh, customers in our facilities to support <clears throat> a lot of different industries. And I think that in some ways, you know that that is impacting too how you know when an organization decides where they're going to host their application may be more impactful. Than than um, whether you're on AWS or Google or Azure. Gotcha. So another fun question to throw at you is that I like to throw at my uh, my interviewees is what is something new and interesting that doesn't even have to be industry related that you've come across that's really made you stop and maybe reprioritize or rethink about how things are happening around you, the world world is happening around you. Um, is there anything that's really made you stop and, and think or surprise you? Yeah, I think um, probably something that I'm really interested in is um, solar energy. And I think that there's, it's really getting to a point where, you know, it, it's fundamentally one of the biggest <clears throat> 
potential disruptors, you know, in our lives will be, you know, when, when everybody, the, the most cost effective thing is to have solar panels on your roof and, you know, think about what that does to, you know, power distribution and power generation and, and, you know, what that does to peak, peak, uh, peaking plants and, you know, that I think uh, over time, I, I just think that this is, um, just an unbelievable shift in, in what's going to happen from a power perspective. And I know it's a little bit tangent to the data center business, but it's, uh, you know, I, I personally have been, you know, tr- tracking that and what's, what's happening, you know, electric cars and batteries and, and how all these pieces are coming together. It's just fundamentally going to change our world. Yeah, the, I was actually just doing a little bit of research on this because I'm in the middle of updating my book for the fifth edition that's going to hopefully be coming out here in the near near future. But uh, what I was digging into is like how much space is truly needed uh, for of solar panels to generate about a megawatt of power, right? Mm-hmm. And the best numbers that I can find are that four acres of panels are needed to generate a megawatt of power. So for any given data center, right? I would assume even the smallest of your data centers probably has multiple megawatts. You're going to need to have access to many, many dozens of acres in order to to power that all from solar if that's the path you wanted to go down. Um, You know, have, have you dug into that for any of your facilities and trying to figure out, you know, how do we get alternative power, non coal, uh, non-fossil fuel-based power systems generating power for our facilities? What what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been trying to get to a, a good uh, break-even point in our Tucson facilities where tremendous amount of sun and, you know, we have enough ground to um, have a decent uh, solar array in that facility. But you know, it's still a little um, early in terms of having truly be able to make that thing into a, uh, a a cost that is, you know, pays back and kind of the time frame we really need it to. And so there, there's still, you know, some requirement for uh, subsidy in that marketplace um, in the data center world. And, and I think where, where I'm thinking about it is, you know, in your um, today, in your personal life, you know, do you, do you say I I'm willing to, you know, because one, personally, you're paying a, a lot higher power costs than what we're going to be paying at a, at a um, data center. So the payback equation is different. And secondly, you may have a different payback equation in your own mind, uh, personally, than you would from a you know, private equity, equity-backed company. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I'm thinking about, it. I think right now, I think the opportunity is in the... Um, the home, the home and, and residential marketplace, but it's quickly going to become, you know, uh, cost parity. And and then do do data center companies partner or do they go uh, into that uh, themselves? You know, yeah. one of the things for us, I mean, we're we're in we're in markets where the land costs are significantly cheaper than Northern Virginia. So you know, it's probably easier for us to be able to make that model work than than some of the you know tier one markets. Mm-hmm. And do, do you have customers? I mean, I remember back when I was selling four different providers, I very, very rarely would come across customers who would even inquire about the mix of power that we were using. Even when I was in the Bay area, 
And even when customers were asking, when I would explain to them that we could access alternative energy sources, however, there was a premium that was charged by PG&E at the time and, and yep. uh, Santa Clara uh, Power um, for that access. They said, ah, you know, it's not that, you know, we're, it's not that big of a deal. If it's going to cost us more, never mind. Right. Yep. And so it yep. really came down to fundamentals of cost. And I don't know if, at least in the U.S., costs for alternative power have come down below um, traditional sources of nuclear or fossil. Um, have you have you dug into any of that? Yeah, you know, um, and I'm with you. I, you know, we initially went out into the market and made sure that our power providers had, you know, given us this the green energy rates and to make sure that we could offer that capability to our customers. And we have not had a single client take advantage of that. Isn't that shocking? Um, that just blows my mind. It is. It is. That being said, though, you know, there's certainly leadership in some of the tech companies, and I'll and I'll give you the example. In, when Google built their data center in um, Iowa, their requirement was to have um, all uh, renewable energy, and so it created a, a, a process. In this case, it was uh, Mid American Energy to build out uh, wind generation and they've, they've built out a tremendous amount. And so, you know, uh, Microsoft has data centers in Iowa, um, Facebook's building out big campuses. Apple just announced, you know, they're building out a, a big data center campus in Iowa. And those companies do require um, renewable energy. And, and, and it's been enough of a driver that, that mid American energy and, and some other power companies have done the same, but they're, committed to 100% renewable and I, and I can't remember the date right now but pretty aggressive time frame to be 100% yeah. renewable well it helps when you have companies like that who are going to commit right long term exactly exactly <laughs> massive yep. amounts of power so then they can justify doing the build out for it um, that definitely helps but what's also interesting is if you look at the total footprint that Google has or Microsoft has or Facebook has uh, that are leveraging alternative power relative to the all of their footprint across the digital realty fields facilities, the Aquinix facilities, the Cyrus One facilities, the QTS facilities. That's where I think there's a little bit of a PR game going on, where they like announcing, you know, their entire data center in Iowa is is renewable, without mentioning that that facility really only consists of about a fraction of a percentage of their entire footprint worldwide. Um, and that it's going to be a lot longer until all of their data centers are powered via alternative energy. Um, yeah. You know, I get it from a marketing perspective and a PR perspective as to why they do it, but I think it's a little, you know, going back to our honesty uh, values, I think it's a little dishonest to the marketplace to not add the, the related context as to, to what's really happening. Um but I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you got us on that tangent because that's all good knowledge that uh, I'm you know scratch my own itch there, but good knowledge for our listeners to share. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you know if anyone else anything else you want our listeners to to know or hear about what you got going on within Involta? Uh, and on top of that, you know, let people know how they can reach out to you if, if people want to get a hold of you and mm-hmm. learn more. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I think the other interesting thing you know more related to data center is. Uh, We've, we've commissioned some expansions just recently and uh, began to use lithium-ion batteries, which I know is nothing new for most people, 
but it's it's relatively new in the data center industry just because there's been so much fear of um, using lithium ion batteries in a data center just be, you know because they've seen the the thermal runaway issues with lithium ion batteries and that's you know a, a really bad thing in a data center. Um, and so um, we we've begun using lithium ion batteries and are convinced that you know they're um, as safe or more safe uh, than any other battery they they can be you know used a number of times without you know degrading their capability they last a lot longer and that they're a fraction of the space required i mean it's just you know kind of all the things uh, together it's just um you know it's just it's a step function better than you know, traditional batteries at this point which I, I i've really you know kind of gotten a little jazzed up about myself <laughs> so Cool. So how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more or, or get in touch? Yeah. So uh, in the best way is to, is to call our, our number on our website. Um, I, I do answer my, my phone. I return calls. Um, my uh, email address is also available. Just uh, blairman at inbolta.com. And uh, I, I do uh, get to as much email as I can. Uh, so that's, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Great. And we'll add this into the show notes when we post it on the, on uh, I love datacenters.com. And the last question I've got for you, Bruce, that I ask all my, uh, all my guests is, do you love data centers? I love data centers. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me, man. This was good yeah, and yeah, fun and good. interesting. And I hope it's not the, the last time that we connect here. I know. I hope one of these days we'll get to see each other in person. That'd be great. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not kidding. I'm. Uh, I will hit you up next time I'm near any one of your facilities. Of all the providers in our market, your Involta is one of very few that I've never actually stepped foot in one of your properties. But uh, I look forward to doing so. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to it as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, sounds good. Thanks, John. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook. That you can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.